All right. So here's what's happening. Producer Ruff here again. How are you guys doing? Thank you so much for listening to us this season one. It was all about pursuit and all about putting things ahead and just going for it this first season. Next season, we have some amazing things coming up. With that being said, I just want to say um, we're going to do something different this episode. Uh, we're going to take some of the best parts of the episodes that we've had in season one, as well as some parts that we cut off Um some of these episodes that you have not heard before. So these are just extended conversations that you will hear from all of our guests this first season. Um, Don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms. And thank you once again for being a part of More Common. It means the world to us. And we can't wait to show you what else we have in store for you this year. It's just, uh, just, just keep being a good human. I'll leave it at that. Glamorous, a two-sided coin of being very unglamorous and being very glamorous. So, for example, um, Fashion Week's coming up here um, next week, and our team has an event in a couple of days for Teen Vogue, where Miss Anna Wintour is showing up. And to me, again, like, that's such a moment of, like, my little Erica self is like, holy shit, I got the (laughs) Vogue party, and Anna Wintour is going to be there. But the unglamorous part of that is like, I'll also be like eating takeout Chinese in the back on cardboard boxes, mm. probably yeah. <laughs> at some point Yeah, that, you know, it's like, I, I'm not like standing next to Anna, but I'll see her with my eyes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it's super special. And again, you know, I, something that I'm very cognizant of always is there are a lot of really dream venues that we get to work at and work at at a regular basis that I know so intimately and have been like deep in the hallways of, right? So something like the New York Public Library or, you know, a Cipriani's kind of space. It's so like sparkly and spectacular and like storied. And even if you've never set foot in New York City, like, you know what that space is somehow, you know, we like the, the, the Waldorf before that wasn't a thing but you know just seeing that and like coming to america (laughs) having having been like i you know had like a a personnel only key to that space and i could let myself into any hallway or room that i wanted to you know it's such a weird special thing to be able to do yeah (laughs) no doubt (laughs) yeah uh, I mean, so it sounds like it, like it, they're different worlds, but like aesthetic and design, like it's still a part of it, like in a, yeah. in, a in a sense, in a way. Definitely. Um, so Keith's question kind of though, like, did you ever, were, did you intend to run your own business or did you dream of running your own business or wh- where did that come about for you? Uh, I didn't, in my, my young adulthood, you know, graduating college, I didn't really expect to run my own business per se and definitely not as early in life as I did. I mean, we started the business, I was probably 28, 28 years old. Um, but also, again, going back to being a classic overachiever and being someone that was always like, you know, student council and the class president and blah, 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 like being someone in a leadership position it also didn't surprise me that that's where this path led me. And the same thing, you know, meeting my two business partners that are very much the same kind of humans that are just extraordinarily awesomely hard workers and people that know how to get things done. And I don't think it came to a shock to any of us that that happened. The other fun little anecdote there is that we're all the oldest sister of two girls. So with all self-awareness and love we also know that we're have been groomed to be bossy bossy (laughs) women (laughs) yeah i got a two Uh, and a half year old old that one of two who is uh, being groomed to groom herself very 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 successfully to be the bossiest person in my house i love i love the word bossy Bossy girls get things done (laughs) it's it's so having a daughter and getting ready to have another one and even before having my daughter, I started to recognize this using the word bossy. Uh-huh. It, it only happens to women. It does not happen to men. Yeah. Yeah. It's like true. if it's a man in the same scenario, he's a good leader. Yeah. He's yeah. a strong leader. Uh-huh. Confident. He's yeah. Very assertive. Confident. Yeah. Assertive. He knows, yeah. he knows what he's looking for. Knows yeah. what he wants. Yeah. Yeah. But a woman's bossy. Like we couch yeah. it. Like yeah. 
Because and it's weird. And I was talking to um, I had a lunch with a coworker the other day, and I was like, man, it's it's very much like for me, in my experience being a black man in corporate America, where I got to show up with a bit extra just to be seen as my yeah. as Keith, for instance, as my white oh, counterparts, yeah. like yeah. just to be seen as equal. I can only imagine what it's like being a woman, mm-hmm. like if, especially an executive or an owner where you've got to show up with extra. Yeah. Like and then for somebody to turn around and call you bossy or bitchy or it's like, wait a second, if a guy does that exact same thing, it's lauded. Yeah. Yeah, not truly. And I mean, I with that in mind, I mean, again, I, I said it before, I I love bossy girls and I love that bossy girls grow up to be bossy women that get things done. So mm. we we embrace it. I mean, I I don't know that anyone outside of our circle has at least not to my face, as it has called us. <laughs> well, well. <laughs> has called us bossy. Um, I mean, at least verbally to my to myself with my own ears. I mean, people do note that we, again, are problem solvers. We get things done. We keep things on track. So it's been positioned in a positive way, and it's never had that negative connotation. But, again, the way that we speak to our team internally is that it's okay to be bossy as long as you know what you're talking about and in fact it's our job to be the leaders on any given project and on site so if that means someone thinks you're bossy fine like you know and this actually this is an interesting thing is we have a reputation in our industry and again i'm knocking on wood that this never changes but we have a a reputation for being good and kind to work with because we're not we're not bossy in a bitchy or mean way and, and we're, we're bossy we're actually, and like we know our shit. Like way. we know our shit. Like, we know our shit. We can move. back it up. Get things done. Yeah, like this yeah, is yeah, what needs to happen. Why. Yeah. But we're also like we're we're known for being pretty chill and like laid back because because we know our shit. It's not scrambled. Like we can have mm-hmm. a great chill, good vibes day because our shit is tight. Some people's best self is that nine to five. Mm-hmm. And you know, I used to think I wanted to be a CEO until I realized what a CEO actually what it took to get there mm-hmm. and what actually meant to be there it's like i have no interest in being that it took me a long time to accept that Mm -hmm. as an okay outcome Mm -hmm. depending on you know what my best self actually is like how that's like a piece of this discovery of who you are Mm -hmm. and finding a way not to say okay your best self awesome Mm -hmm. mine not that Mm -hmm. but i love what you're doing Mm -hmm. how do you get that how do you help people get that that's tough uh I will say I, I want to like put a pin in that comparison is not always bad. It is part of learning theory. You know, the idea that like what you're doing is a little bit better than me. And I, I think I can do that too. You know, like we need others to explore potential. There would be a trap to like living with blinders on in a bubble and not ever like peering out to what's yeah. possible. Right. So the, what takes place though is many of us will peer too far out <laughs> without like, you know, um, taking the steps or having sort of a realistic idea of, of how to get there, you like know? The wor- like what it, what it takes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so going back to acceptance, I think it's really challenging. It's a, it's a journey that I'm still on. When I teach things like confidence, um, coming from self-talk, right, and the mechanics of how to get that right, at, underneath it all is self-acceptance, self-compassion, self-empathy. And I think it's really difficult, especially for people who are getting after it in some sort of way because of the self-critique, you know, because it, it, it has gotten most people um, where they are, where they are. Or at least uh, they feel. Yeah. Well, I guess it has to, to a degree. To a degree, like we talked about earlier, right? It's like having a chip on your yeah. shoulder. Yeah. It has to get you somewhere, yeah. right? So yeah. then the question is like, is this working for me anymore? <laughs> I think we all reach a point where it's like there's a moment of awareness, you know, and I can't give that to my clients, <laughs> you know, like you were saying, like I wanted this for so long. And then I was like, wait a second, <laughs> you know, cause you had a moment of awareness. And so I think awareness is really key. Like, is this working for me? Um, is the reason why I'm driving towards this because I'm like, there's a fire in my belly for it or because this is an idea that I've had, or maybe a seed that was planted. That's not really mine. It's not really what I'm passionate about or driven and nobody towards. Nobody give you that. You right. just gotta yeah. sit with it you and gotta figure sit with it out. It. Yeah, which and we're taught not to do. Right. We're taught to. Yeah. We're taught to follow the the formula. Right. right? Like yeah. Exactly. Whoever whoever designed that formula mm-hmm. wrote that formula. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if it's there. It came on. Yeah, yeah. So so in terms of like self compassion and self empathy, it's like. 
can I hold space for myself in the same way that I would for my best friend in a time of need? And then can I meet them, meet myself with a level of understanding um, that I would with my best friend in a time of need? Um, because I think we're often trying to externalize those needs, you know, um, well, holding well, space and, and understanding, and it gets in the way of acceptance. Where are you at with that? Uh, I think I think I've come a long way, especially in the last year. Um, I've what's definitely. That, what's that journey like? What What does that look like for you? For me, it's a, a lot of mindfulness around compassion, loving kindness, self empathy. Um, I mean, also, the negative a, sorry, that a, also a great no. book is Radical Acceptance by Tara Brock. Um, uh, so thanks for the books. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I missed your question. Right. What was, what's the negative side of that? What, how has that looked for you during this journey? Like, uh, I think some people think that like acceptance is the same as complacency and that like, I think for a long time I was reticent to, to go down that route because it's like, I might lose my edge and, uh, and they're not the same. They're not the same acceptance. So you're is, kind of act actively fighting it. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, huh. acceptance is not complacency. Acceptance is like a willingness to, to just like. I love you, but you suck. <laughs> no, a, w a willingness <laughs> to experience difficult things, you know, and have a sense of balanced neutrality or balanced perspective around it. I think uh, another thing that gets in the way of acceptance is like just attachment, you know, attachment to experience and to outcomes. That's you know? what Yoda says. Um, there you go. And, and he's the master. And so. he's the master. So. And he speaks funny. <laughs> mm. <laughs> mm. <laughs> your life is yours it is <laughs> that was a really bad quote I, I made it up <laughs> my mind doesn't think like Yoda I have to ask a question it kind of going back because mm. you slid this in there and I don't want it to let it go your parents got divorced at 14 oh, I'm yeah. sure that played yeah, a part good job. What, did, that down. What, what did you mean by that uh I, th I think in retrospect, sport was an outlet for me. It was a coping mechanism for, for what I was experiencing at home, which is one of the reasons why I was so competitive. Were you aware of it or did, was it just that? No, I yeah. wasn't aware of it. I, and Was uh, it a hard divorce on you then? I actually wanted my parents to get divorced. Oh. Yeah. Um, yeah, my dad was physically... You were acutely aware of it? My dad was physically abusive to my mom. Oh, so you were um, acutely aware of it. Yeah. Not, not, in, not up until the point of their divorce, but um, early on in life until probably I was, I don't know, eight, nine or 10. I don't remember. Um, but, you know, my mom had black eye, broken nose. There were police at our house on several occasions. Um, the last time I saw my parents together, I physically had to separate them. Um, so. Like last time, like recently? No, no, no. Sorry. When I was 14. Oh, like, 14. Um, oh, yeah. Okay. So, so I got, you know, that like my parents shouldn't be together. It was hard for me because when I was a little kid, um, even though my dad was physically abusive to my mom, he was like the apple of my eye and we did everything together, you know, and he was never physically abusive to me. Um, as I got older and started to have my own voice and speak out about what I was seeing and hearing, then he started to become, I would say like more ver verbally abusive or neglectful. Um, so I think I was... I think I was always searching for, for just stuff outside of that, you know? And so sport was great for me in that I found a support system outside of home. And then I was able to work out some, some, some aggression, <laughs> a little bit you know, physically. yeah, physically, in a real yeah, way, in yeah. a real way, you know? Yeah. And so, but now it makes sense to me, you know, like, um, like I was, I was sharing last night that like I was reactive and like, super competitive i would get annoyed with my teammates if they didn't work hard and so you know people would call me a bitch sometimes and i was saying how grateful i was to my coach's wife because she she kind of guided me like you know like you're competing hard but there's another way to do this but when we look at like there's so much research now around early childhood trauma and exposure to violence and and um experiencing violence yeah and what we know now is like the question is not what what's wrong with you. It's what what has happened to you. And no one asked me that question ever because I'm white and I come from a middle class family. And you're good, right? Right. I'm good. You're, right. You're privileged. Yeah, exactly. Right. Not to feel any. Yeah. Way. Yeah. So I think I, I just continued to like really push the edge in terms of sport because it was a little Petri dish for me to explore um, myself. I just saw a thing uh, the other day. I think it was on Instagram. It was like. It, it, it's not, I am depressed. It's, I have depression. I have depression. That's right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's. Hmm. Is that, like, 
is that why you do what you do today? Like, does that play a role in it? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think once I got some space after retirement from my career and I started to understand my psychological framework and kind of what was driving me for so many years to be good, um, that I realized that, and going back to something we talked about earlier is that like high performance and joy in the pursuit of being your best do not have to be dichotomous, but that's often the model that we see. Yeah. And so uh, one of the things that fires me up most is that like one, I, I think a common characteristic of, of really high performers, elite high performers that, that is that they've had some sort of pain early in life that has driven them. Uh, which means that there are, there are things that need to be addressed. You know, um, a lot of high performers struggle with depression, anxiety, substance abuse. Um, and so, which I, I don't want to say I like, suffered from but i dipped into at at times in my career you know um but also like there because of my inability to filter through you know like the one bonehead mistake on certain days like i didn't have a ton of joy in my experience of being on the world stage and so yes knowing what i know now like i want to be able to help people and create space for people to pursue their best but also understand the mechanisms for thriving and flourishing and joy in the in the process of doing so I used to work for a company called uh, Uniroyal in Mishwaka. Huge corporation, multi-billion. So they used to make these type of containers, but the process was very old process, vulcanizing. They use uh, uncured materials and make this uh, big collapsible tank anywhere from 55 gallons, all the way to 210,000 gallons. But anyway, so, and Unilever had almost 99% business in US military and commercial making this type of containers. So, and the Unilever, they did everything in house, everything. They never bought anything from outside. So they lost one contract. And so there was a big havoc happened in, in the headquarters engineer system. And they asked me to investigate why we lost that contract. They found out that uh, the new company come with a new material, thermoplastics. So it doesn't require any vulcanizing process. It's already cured. It's just like a but if you hit it, it melts. And when it cools down, it becomes harder. So using uh, hot air, you can make a joint. So for example, making a 75 feet long seam, joining two panels together, at Unirol, it takes about an hour and a half because of the vulcanizing process. But with the new process, thermoplastic, it takes about seven minutes. Wow. And also the quality-wise, is absolutely perfect quality because in the vulcanizing, if you lose the temperature or the heat, yeah. but it's no good. Mm-hmm. But here, the thermoplastic material is already cured. So it doesn't go bad. You can always reuse it. So I wrote this process and the whole uh, paper, give to my boss. He was so excited. He went to the headquarters. And they said, nope, we cannot do it. Yeah. And they went out of business in about five years. And so I went to BF Goodrich in Ohio, back to Ohio. And they were doing the same thing. They were, so anyway, so my wife said, it is, we cannot, keep changing the job back and forth, back and forth. We just need some kind of stability. So let's start the business. So, so and we love Southern area very much. So I travel from Akron, Ohio to South Bend every week for a whole year oh. to set up the business. And then we family moved to back to South Bend. And uh, and what we do is very GTA was very first very very first company small business to make this type of containers mm. and company against Uniroyal, BF Goodrich, Goodyear, Firestone. Very unique process, and because of the GTA, there are another six small business make the similar products. 
the, the products we make is very unique. Uh, we make also 500-gallon drum, collapsible drums. Even Goodyear and Goodrich Carnival build it. It's very highly technical specification to meet, sophisticated specifications, that I come with a process using thermoplastic materials. And we are the only company, there's another small company also makes drums, but, but we're the old fashioned, old way. And, and because of, do you have five more minutes? Let me do one more story. I do, Rodney. I can. I mean, I got five minutes. Yeah. I can spare. But yeah, I do. Uh, Rach and Ruby are on the way up, so they can say hi. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, like so reprieve my mom from from the from yeah. So so what about in in uh, nine, ninety nine just before the Gulf War, very first Gulf War started. Yeah. Uh, we used to get all the contracts up to making fifty thousand gallon tanks. Now every single contract since nineteen eighty eight as of that time. We delay on time or ahead of the schedule. And we always lost the contract for 210,000 gallon tanks because our price was very high. And our competitors, so government bought, US military bought all the 210,000 gallon tanks from this supplier. So in 1999, maybe 2000, I get a phone call. So Louis answered the phone. Say, Louis, can you be able to make 210,000 gallon tanks? And she said, yeah, we can make. We never made it before, but we can make it. So next day, about 13 to 15 people from the U.S. headquarters, U.S. Army headquarters, come to South Bend to visit us and telling us about they own the tanks right now. And trying to find out that they had 137 210,000 gallon tanks failed. Com destroyed completely, even half full. Just seam opening up, seam opening up. So they had no fuel. There's no storage. And without the fuel, army cannot do anything. Fuel or the water. Right. Right. Anyway, so they give us a sole source contract to making 10,000 gallon tank. We never built it before. So so they give us 90 days to start making and shipping the tanks. So end of end of 60 days, we had to build a dome for the testing purpose. 52 foot tall dome, do the testing. And on the day 60, the dome is completed. On the day 61st, we start making the, testing the tanks and start shipping. So they took our tanks in Kuwait to, Abga, uh, to Iraq, 32, 210,000 gallon tank. They're filling the tank overnight, back and forth, 24 hours a day, from Kuwait to Iraq. 30, that was the biggest fuel depot army ever had before. When they filled the last tank, they started the bombing era. And uh, so the master sergeant in charge of that fuel depot he visited GT after three, four years. And he, he told us what happened. And that's why I know so. And the thing is that the, we take so much pride in our quality. And, uh, and, and, and Luis always said, we do what we say. And so uh, that's why every single contract we deliver on time or ahead of the schedule. And as of today, we have zero reject. Draft out of the high school in baseball top, like the top DB in the state. Um, my yard came out, led the state in interceptions, highly recruited. But my resilience is what kept me. Um, I always say, I'm, I don't think I'm really smart. I'm just real resilient and I'm resourceful. I'm going to figure out a way. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to find somebody that know the answer. You know, so uh, the doors kept being shut. Finally got everything through. I was going to go to North Carolina, I mean, South, University of South Carolina. Score wasn't, they said my score didn't count because my SAT went up too much. Um, so that was a slap in the face. I'm like, man. So Which, then I went. Like, I, I just you said it a second time now. I'm thinking, like, what kind of a response is that? Like, you took the test again. Your score mm -hmm. went up, and they said it went up like, too this high. Is a test because these well, tests, because like, a lot of guys cheat at home. You take it at a proctored location. Exactly. Like, well, like, what, what the advocacy needs to come in is because 
I was on Ritalin. I used to get in trouble a lot in school. So nobody would have expected me to be a teacher, get mm-hmm. on a system. I used to get in trouble a lot. So they let me take the test untimed. So when I got untimed, that took all the anxiety out. But I didn't have when they when they when they came against me and said that my score went up too much, I didn't have all the paperwork to justify that. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's only because a lot of people cheat. And I know some guys I play college ball with. I don't. I know you ain't get a good enough score to be qualified <laughs> to be playing. I'm like, how are you here? <laughs> you know. But so that happened. Then I went to Grambling as a prop forty eight. Um, I was extremely focused, and that What's means prop forty eight. So basically, they let you into school, and you have the condition where you have to get twenty four credits to become a sophomore within that first year, and abide by a certain amount of rules to show twenty four in the first year. Yeah. In the first year or first? Oh, not not in the first semester. The first year. The first year. Yeah, first year. To, to become okay. a sophomore, to like to honor um, them letting you in and to show that you were responsible. So I went there. I was on a mission. Did that. Was doing really well in football. Um, I mean, I was doing really well. Um, my first year, I could play, um, making a good name for myself. And then around week four, week five, the something I'd never thought happened. Like I literally was doing so well as a freshman. Well, my second year in college, but my freshman year on the field, that I would be in my room and I would just get overjoyed knowing, like, man, I'm going to the NFL. I'm doing this good as a freshman. I got three more years. I know I'm going to the NFL. And uh, I was actually physically assaulted by a coach in the weight room. Um, They came up behind me, choked me. Uh, I woke up on the ground. I didn't know what happened. And two, I went back to my room and I called one of my friends that was in there. And you find out who your friends are when stuff like this going on. Needless to say, we both end up transferring. Um, I mean, it was so, so wait, bad. Yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Let's, like, let's, 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 what? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm you telling you, I can write a book. Back. Most people don't know. Yeah, like I, the, the story, um, I was a freshman. I was one of the only freshmen that was getting playing time. We had a strength coach. He was not, he wasn't certified, wasn't very professional. Kind of used to play around with the guys a lot. And sometimes he would try to pick with me because I was a freshman. And I just wasn't having it. And I think he was really based on what some stuff that was said and what he said, he was going through some stuff. I didn't have a conversation with him afterwards based on what people that we both knew he was going through some stuff. Cause he kind of snapped. And I think he kind of took that out on me, but, um, you know, we had some in the weight room. Yeah. What? Oh. So what was going on is, you know, he was saying some stuff to me. We kind of had words. It wasn't like me. Cause I didn't have a reputation of like arguing back and forth with my coaches, but, um, it was kind of like a power struggle. He was trying to get me to do some weight, that I couldn't do. And I told him I couldn't do it. He called me some names. I had some responses back to him. And, you know, um, I said, you know, he he was cussing at me and talking crazy. And I was like, man, you're not even a real coach. And I'm not saying that was the right thing to say, but it didn't warrant his response. Yeah, you know, yeah. no, no, it doesn't equal choking. Word, yeah, yeah. Like, like, a full yeah. choking. I, I can say any words to you, really. I mean, no, there so, are very few that would warrant that. Yeah, yeah, but it was crazy because he tried to get me to like do these hundred pound dumbbells, and I couldn't do it. And I was like, oh, guess I can't do it. And he just started calling me all types of names. And I said, bro, you're not even a real coach. So as I'm picking up the dumbbell to put it back on the rack, my my back is turned. But even if I was facing him realistically, he's about six one, three hundred pounds solid. Me. Uh, 165, 170-pound, six-foot uh, freshman. It wasn't much I would have been able to do yeah. with him anyway. Yeah. I just felt the hands around my neck. I look in the mirror. I mean, his eyes were just, like, evil, and I woke up on the ground. And I called my friend uh, when I got back to the room because I'm still like, I don't know what happened. Um, when the coach had me out in the hallway, like, man, is everything okay? And I was wondering why everybody was just so, like, in awe, like, like nervous. It was like somebody just got shot, you would have thought. And um, I, I go in the room, I call him. He said, man, he grabbed you by your neck. Everybody tried to get him off of you. And um, I got him off, and you shook, and your head, hands rolled, eyes rolled back to back to your head like I had a seizure on the ground. And um, and I was like, wow. And I'm 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 mad, and I'm uh, confused, because I just want to live a normal college life <laughs> and play ball and, you know, go to the NFL and just be normal. This is at the time when uh, Maurice Claret was at Ohio State. He was all in the mm-hmm. news. I didn't want that. So I had some pretty popular lawyers um, that found out about this. They called me. The top lawyer at LSU Law called me, basically, you know, convinced me to come up and talk to me and let me do some papers, to sign some papers for them to help represent me. Um, you know, a very popular NBA player's lawyer was going to work pro bono for me. 
Um, I had spoken with him, and I mean, I could at worst I could have got a settlement to get a lot of money. Um, but I was so confident in my ability, I was like, and I just felt like I ain't want all this energy. Um, so I was like, well, this is I was I was like, I'm just going to transfer. I can go D1. The realm was one double A, but it wasn't like D1 D1. Right. Louisiana Tech was right up the street, and um, my life had changed. For one, sports wasn't everything. I had an amazing mentor at the church I was going through, the pastor. I'm just an amazing uh, man, and um, I didn't want to leave that covering, so I didn't go home and transfer to the University of Maryland or something like that. I wanted to stay there, and I went right up the street. And and if it wasn't for the resilience, I would have dropped out because, I mean, when I tell you I went from the man to, you know, being on scout team for three years over people that I was clearly better. I was more highly recruited than everybody with except for, with the exception of, like, two people on the team. I was clearly better. I go get 130 30 yards and a touchdown or something in the spring game. Nobody else was getting no yards. It got to the point where at points where the crowd would cheer my name. Like people, I made it, I made it known by my senior year. Everybody knew who like I was. Cheered your name like Rudy style, like put him yeah. in. Yeah. Cause it was you go to the spring game, you'll see this guy get over oh, 120, yeah. 130 yards, scoring All touchdowns. Then the season go, it's like, who is this guy? Where and everybody on the yeah. team knew. You know, so it got bad, but it was a lot of um, thing, man. There's people that didn't go through close to what I went through that quit, that transfer. And I always realized, I said, I'll never let them see me sweat. I got kicked off the team three times. Once I got kicked off and not squatting low enough, one time I turned the wrong way in the drill. Um, it was bad, man. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> it's some people wow. that's in the NFL right <laughs> now that can verify the stuff that I'm saying. I want to <laughs> speculate for a second. Roid rage much with your uh, ex-lifting coach? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know, I got to see him like a, a year ago. I gave him a hug. Yeah. Mm. He's a strength coach at a major university now. Where does what? this ease of forgiveness, like you, you gave him a hug, like that changed your trajectory, at least politically, right? Yeah. Well, and playing. Like, you, I mean, you stopped playing, basically, and your dad – like you, you, it, it took you two years, but where does this, is it your faith? Is it like, where's that, where's that anchor? My, it's definitely my faith. Um, cause I know that fire don't put out fire, mm. you know, love conquers all. And then my mom always emphasized that my mom always emphasized that, um, you but know, does that, does that make it easy to forget? I mean, you, you just, you saw him a year ago. So that's how many years removed from the incident and you being out of school. Yeah. Like, did it come easy even no, with your faith or I had to be, I had to pray about stuff like that every day. You know, mm. I, play, I would say people say faith come by hearing, not by and heard. It's a continuous thing. Uh, forgiveness is a process. And then I realized like, if I'm, I'm 34 years old now, if I'm looking at you at the time I was 33 last summer, I'd, if I'm looking at you and I'm still mad at you about something from college, I done graduated. I done moved on. I'm a father. I'm thriving. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in line for purpose of doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, it ain't, it ain't no point. It ain't no point being hung up and mad on that. That's hurting me. He's obviously moved on. He's doing well, Yeah. you know, and he was kind of nervous when he seen me. He's a real big guy, but it was like, I don't think he was scared nervous, but he was just kind of like, Right. What? I that, that he knows he gave he, gonna yeah. pay, yeah. He, he was wrong and shit. And I looked at him right. and I just went like this. And I said, man, give me a hug. You know? So. And yeah, let me think back. Yeah. So I remember when I told. Um, so it's a little bit of a long story, but the, just to start it off, I remember when I told him I was starting a business and he said, that's fucking stupid. Really? That was the straight up. And reply. I was like, I was like, I can cry right now or I can get really pissed off. And it got me really mad. Uh -huh. And it ended up working out well for me because it kind of was like, I'll show you kind of thing. And so chip on. So I, I thought I sensed that. Wait, did you <laughs> did you anticipate that response? No, I thought it was going to be like, oh, that's awesome. I, I'm, I'm happy for you. Like, just keep doing school. I thought that's what it would have been. I was like, that's fucking stupid. He was like, you have no experience. You haven't read any business books. You haven't gotten to the business courses in school yet. Why? You haven't you checked have, all the boxes. You haven't yeah, earned the right to you do start, this. Yeah. You haven't had a job yeah. that had to do anything with business. Like, it's not a good idea. You're going to waste money. And I was like, but hear me out. It's, it's pretty low risk. And that's the other thing. Starting an online business is lower risk than brick and mortar. And yeah. that's probably what he had in mind. Yeah. Like, you do need capital to start a brick and mortar location. A lot of it, yeah. Yeah, and I didn't have any capital. I started with two hundred dollars, and you went from two hundred dollars to twenty five k a month. 
well, I put two hundred dollars in, and then yeah, I was making twenty five thousand dollars in sales in five in months. Month. Let's be very clear. So you didn't anticipate your dad's answer. You got angry, and you're like, "I'll show you." And at everyone, I mean, my boyfriend at the time too. He's like, "That's fucking stupid." Everyone literally told me that was fucking stupid, and I was just so angry. I was like, "Why can't I?" There's literally no risk of two hundred dollars that I'll make back. Was there anybody that was like, yeah, do it, other than you? It's so interesting to me. Not a single person in my life that mattered. Interesting. So so you got this response, which I find to be a very normal human, like, do what I say, not... It's because they are worried for me. Yeah. Wasting my money. But at the same time, like... Waste two hundred dollars. Taking the sales pitch of it's only two hundred bucks capital, and I'm I still have a job, and I'm still going to college, so what's the downside, right? Yeah. No. What was what was the initial Walt Disney? um, What was he asking? It was like twenty five dollars. Was the initial investment he was asking for, and people were like, "This is stupid." Yeah. Yeah. Like to build Disneyland. Yeah. So so you got that response. Yeah. Yeah, and that that really did upset me, and I'm and I'm so glad it did, <laughs> because I was just like, I'm gonna show you all, like, you all. This isn't like it's not true, and so uh, I st- I still going to school, and then slowly you would see my grades going down because I was putting all my time into yeah. my business. I was secretly not going to class, I'm and. There. Uh, yeah. I was I was doing that, was but bad. I didn't have a business. Hey, I don't blame yeah. you. I don't yeah. like school, but yeah, I was. I mean, at least I was. Like, I feel bad now that I've wasted my dad's money for a whole year at university and but paying you could for me to pay live there. Back yeah. off of like a month of revenue. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that <laughs> I have. Yeah, I have goals to repay him and. I'll do that soon. But yeah, I was wasting my time. Not wasting my time. I wasn't wasting my time, but I wasn't going to class. I was working on my business all day long. And yeah, month five. Um, actually, <laughs> check my bio. I think it's month six, five or six. It's in month five. Okay, month yeah. five is when I was able to quit it. And when I got that huge sales goal and I was like, okay, officially done with the job. The job. And that job was actually funding everything for the business because it wasn't making enough. Number one investor. Yeah, it wasn't making enough to just keep everything. And, and I was smart at that age to be like, oh, wow, I'm actually making an extra four or five hundred off of this business. Why not just keep it? Instead, I was like putting it right back in uh-huh. plus the money I was getting from my job, which just wasn't a lot. I think I was making like fifteen hundred to two thousand a month. Yeah. So but everything I got, I put into that, uh, which was really nice and obviously did help that my parents did at the time help pay for school and my and my bills. So I'm very grateful for that. I know if it wasn't for that, I would have been backtracked a lot if I had to pay for all those things. Sure. It's a really subtle thing that what you did there, and I hear some people give this advice, but it's like you had a job. It wasn't the greatest. It was okay, but it was paying you, yeah. and you could use that to feed the thing that you thought would be successful and yeah. you made successful, frankly. And then when it paid off, you could quit the job. And a lot of people are like, no, nah, you just quit the job. And it's like maybe for some people that's a thing, but yeah. You can also do both. Yeah. 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 And so the first thing I did was I quit that job and month at the end of month five. And I told my dad that I'm quitting and he's like, you maybe it is working out for you, but you should stay there for at least a year for your resume. Oh, and I was like, dad, I hate it. (laughs) I freaking hate it. I was like, I can't stand it. He's like, I'm telling you, they're not going to refer, write you any referrals. And I know they won't. Of course they won't. And I don't, I don't care. I don't need them. I wish you needed if you have a business. And not only that, but at at my admin referral, admin assistant referral isn't really going to help me with being a business Where you're trying to go. And it did help a little bit. I mean, I, I appreciate. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I appreciate like being around that environment. It definitely helped. That was my first time because growing up. Growing up in high school, I worked too. And my parents didn't want me to work back in high school, which is really funny. They want me to focus on school. But I worked in the restaurants and I hated that too. And so transitioning from there to the office was so exciting for me. And I ended up learning I hated it, but it still it taught me a lot, you know, like how to dress, how to greet people. I, I was still the youngest person in there. They told me the youngest person they'd ever hired was 28 and I was wow. 18. And so that was hard for them to accept. So it was cool being around people that were, you know, 28 and, and older and they're all architects. It was an architecture firm. So, I mean, it was really good experience being around those kinds of people, you know, clients of theirs spending a lot of money. So it wasn't just like some, 
random office. It was like a really important office to be in. So that was even really huge for me to get. But then I realized it wasn't for me. And the next thing, so after I quit my job, I still stayed in school for my parents, Mm -hmm. not for myself. And at that time, I also knew that I wanted to move to California. So I was really, really sad at that time because I was like, man, how am I going to move out there? But do school here. I can't. My parents aren't going to pay for California tuition. And like I'm already in school. Like I I could finish school in, in like two more years at this point. So I decided to start learning on how I can save up and move here while I was in school. So I went to school for another semester in the fall of 2017. And that was when I totally skipped all my classes. I failed every class that semester. I don't know. I think it's my, yeah, I didn't tell my parents if they hear this. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) I got straight Fs, not because I'm stupid, because I wasn't going, but that is stupid that I, that I didn't just drop out this, you know, that you have two weeks to withdraw. And I just, I was like, no, I, I can do it. I did not do it. I was in my apartment all day, packaging swimsuits, working all day. I hired a friend that went to school with me. I kind of got her to start skipping class with me and we were working on it all day. And of course I was paying her. And so that at the end of that semester or that whole semester, I was planning on moving here in January, 2018, which I did secretly. And my parents hate me for the way I did it. I'm really, I'm really sorry for what I did to them. But um, yeah, that whole semester I was just plotting my escape and not even telling my parents properly because I was so scared. Yeah. What, there's a lot of pressure on to stay in school. And to move right? here, which is another mm. huge thing that they still don't support. So they don't like you living in California. No. Is it because you're not with them or is it? An, like, is it social reasons? I don't know if you know this, but everyone who's not from here or doesn't live here or hasn't visited thinks that it's ridiculous. The taxes, the extra costs, I, I the cost in, of living. I live in Cleveland. So anybody who's not from or has never visited Cleveland thinks Cleveland's a rat hole. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not so true. I, totally I will vouch it. for the yeah. city of Believe yeah. Land. Yeah. Yeah. And it is more expensive, like right. a lot more expensive totally. than Florida. But it's doable. But it's doable. And and I prepared for it. And that's the thing I was telling my parents, like, because I flew out. The reason I got, I fell in love with California because I flew out here for um, a photo shoot for my swimsuit company because the, all the big models live out here, not in Florida. And I was like, wow, I freaking love it here. The energy here, the people, like there's opportunities. Vibe junkie. Vibe. Yeah. The vibe. Yeah, was good. The vibe. Yeah. And I, I was like, I love it. So I got home and I was like, hey guys, like I love California. I want I might want to move there one day. Like, no, it's so expensive. You won't be able to afford that. You don't even have a job. Cause I was right. like, my company didn't count to them. Yeah. And they're like, Which it doesn't to a lot of people. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, it's just a hobby. It's, it's, like it's a just hobby. a thing. Yeah. <laughs> is like, that, yeah. Like it's, it's making me like 25 oh, grand a month. It's a passion project. That's two, so cute. Like 25 <laughs> grand versus, I don't know what the profit margin is, but still 25 grand versus 18, two grand. Well, I mean, even further back, like, did your mom do that? Your dad? No, like, no, no. That's how, like, where do you get to? So I'll where be honest, I made that up on my own. I knew some here and there. I knew some. So you picked up pieces. Yeah. So I picked up all the pieces and I was able to assemble them together and make it into almost like a formula a little bit so if you have to start from a place of, of good intention in every discussion you have to because otherwise then you might as well not talk you, what's the point of talking if you right other than to boost your own ego yeah. and say prove you're right but when you go into a situation mm-hmm. trying to prove you're right with someone who vehemently disagrees mm-hmm. with you you will inherently never prove mm-hmm. Yourself right to that person, unless happen. you're not going to boost your ego. It won't happen. You're that's just going to feel bad about that's yourself. That's right. Or angry at that person. Yeah. Yeah. Your, 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 your intention could be to uh, find the solution, which is you're going to practice understanding. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or your intention could be to uh, win this argument, which means your brain, your brain is going to lock that area that, that uses understanding. It's going to lock it down. It's going to use the other side instead. That uh, goes with arguments and uh, and also uh, and, and almost almost in a lot of delusion too. Mm-hmm. So people will like say certain things as an argument that everyone knows is wrong, but they will use it because you can't prove it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So then now they they got you stuck in the middle, you know. So they go forever, forever until finally they catch you on one thing that you said wrong, and then they'll use that to win the whole argument. 
It's hilarious. <laughs> it's hilarious. But I'm like, yo, we're sitting here talking about an important topic, and the whole time, you're just thinking this is like a game show. You. What the fuck? How am I going to get this you? This is not yeah. Jeopardy, No man. whammies, no whammies, no whammies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I know this um, oh, yeah. line of speech. I've, I've done this. Uh-huh. I've, I've done that. We all have done it. Yeah. I've oh, done it, absolutely. too. Absolutely. And yeah. sometimes I do, when I do it, mostly I do it with, with sports. Just for the sake of it, whatever. I sometimes I like, I, I call it practice arguing. Practice arguing. <laughs> it's like, honestly, arguing is a very, 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 very good intellectual exercise. Oh, without a doubt. But it only, an exercise is supposed to improve you. Mm. So when you're arguing and you argue like an idiot, you actually get dumber. Mm. Seriously. Because if you keep using idiot techniques bad you will get stupid your brain's going to keep closing off logic. all the areas that are logic and thinking and comes up with creative ways to make your arguments and um uh, instead yeah, you're ultimately ar- just saying the same thing over and over it, again. well even worse yeah. because now you start to believe the shit yeah you know what i mean delusion that, that's why it's difficult that's why it's dangerous to argue from a place of lying you don't have to try to win the argument by making slick truthful arguments don't try to win by lying mm. you're going to you're going to put your brain mm-hmm. in a very delusional place and then it won't get out of it mm. that people don't understand this when you're doing that you're doing it to yourself because mm. when you're thinking while you're doing it and you're very passionately thinking that gets recorded in your subconscious mind you start to believe the bullshit you're feeding other people mm. that's the danger of arguing while lying mm. you guys do it more for uh, things that are uh, uh, um, uh, of pride and of like uh, like sports or or like yeah I did this no I did that no yo I run a four six two no I run a well, actually they say four two one oh yeah right, run, right, run right. Like four nine five like, <laughs> come on dude flip that nine over bro <laughs> <laughs> so West Africa yes. you said do you say Paris or do you Paris say- Paris for three years and Montreal so do you speak French Montreal yeah parlez-vous français bien sûr bien sûr ça va, ça va? très couramment <laughs> Uh, why, what, what got, hmm, let's try that again. <laughs> Why'd you travel around? Uh, well, actually it wasn't my choice. My dad, uh, sent me to, you know, to, to learn French pretty much. Oh, really? Or, you know, possible future of, uh, going back to Africa and, you know, living there, working there. Yeah. So your dad sent you to Paris. Yes, he did. Yeah. To learn, like so education was the, yeah, that's right. So what was that? like for you at 10 years old uh yeah it wasn't fun but you know i i kind of actually who'd you go with alone <laughs> i really? was in a i was in a boarding school but you know i kind of appreciate it now to be honest because i i realized that it put me in a, on a on a path that's different from everyone here yeah so if i had came from africa and stayed here till now I wouldn't have gotten some of those key, very, very key experiences that really, by the way, changed my way of thinking. You like know what, what I mean? So, anything come yeah. to mind? Yeah. Uh, well, one would be, for example, uh, in France, they practice a lot of small, what I call small, respectful ways on a daily basis, on a moment by moment basis. Like, you know, they're going to hold the door for a lady, they're going to say please and thank you all the time. You're going to um, uh, sit at a table correctly, direct, you know, you're going it, to, it's not even big. It's nothing huge. Sure. But it's manners. a small, yeah, because those manners truly uh, put us at ease with each other. Yeah. It makes the relationship easier, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, they do a lot of that, even though it doesn't seem like a lot. It really is important, right? Um, um, Before we go too far away from this, mm-hmm. you said it wasn't fun. Yeah. Like, what was the experience like? So it was pretty much... Uh, was there a conversation or was your dad just like, no, you're going... Like, I signed you up. You're out. Like, uh, have you ever seen an African dad? <laughs> 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 Did you just say conversation? <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. No, that's not... There was none of that. No, no, no. That's no. not... That, in that relationship, there is no uncomfortable conversation. It's, it's just do what one I person say. sitting down yeah. listening and then yeah. doing it. It's yeah. uncomfortable, but it's not a conversation. Uh, yeah, 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 it is. It is. It's only uncomfortable for one yeah, person. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. it. Just yourself, not the dad. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, no, but uh, so it was more being away from my family at that age. You know, it just didn't feel like it was natural 
and it felt, uh, I mean, there was a lot of years, a lot of times where it felt kind of lonely, you know. And that was for three years. Yeah. And well, another three years in Montreal as well. So six years altogether. Yeah. So did you go back home? I, yeah, yeah. I would stay at a, at a boarding school and I would go back to visit them twice a year. So, you know, but the good thing was though, uh, that it, uh, it, it made me mature. It really did. It made me mature faster than most uh, uh, of the, you know, 15, 16, no, 10, 12, 15 year olds. Because mm-hmm. I had to like sit and uh, think a lot more on my own and also, you know, learn a lot of stuff on my own, you know. And, and uh, I mean, that, that was my path. So, you know, you can't, I, I don't regret it. I yeah. just, I'm just, just describing it. Right. Yeah. I, you right. know, big difference, right? But I really do now see the value in it. It was good. Yeah, it's crazy. It's so um, unpredictable which moments you actually have, you actually pressed record on, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Like, well, to your point, how did you organize it as an adult? Like, right. how did you yeah. ascribe meaning to it? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Why are you holding on to these pebbles? Right. And so many of them are so meaningless, you know? I have just the weirdest memories of like begging this babysitter to, do this bit she once did where she pretended she was like a pitch person going through my refrigerator or refrigerator at home, like taking out objects and, and pretending she was like doing a commercial for them. Uh, and I was so like delighted. What's that? Like the sham wow yeah, guy. Like sham wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and um, I remember begging her to do it again and she just didn't want to. And mm. like looking back, I'm like, oh, the first time I think she was just stoned. Uh. And I mean, you know, this is 70, whatever, 78, yeah. 79. So I'm sure she came to my house and whatever. God bless. And, but I just have such a memory of like pleading with her and her saying no and getting more and more annoyed with me. Yeah. And me being so confused by her annoyance. And like, what is that? Why does that yeah. always, that just yeah. comes around once a month. Like, I where think, do they come from? What does it mean? Like, is that my kink? Yeah. Like, is that like, was that like early arousal? <laughs> yeah. Her denial? I, is this what I need my wife to start doing is Denying marketing me? to me? Well, she's intuiting that. Oh. Oh, I'm just, come on. That's well, just an easy joke. I got you. That's just an easy joke. What, um, so victim complex. Sure. What, what, uh, I mean, I have a, I, I do it a little bit myself. I think maybe, I don't know if everybody does it. I do it for sure. But what does it mean for you? I mean, it means I forgot to tell Catherine that I have tickets to go see a comedy show tonight and my daughter's having a sleepover and it will be really annoying to try to get out of the house to go see this show that a friend of mine is performing in that he months ago asked me if I wanted to go see and I said, of course. And now I either have to tell her I forgot to fucking tell you, but I have to go to this show tonight and deal with those consequences or more likely text him. Um, oh my God, dude, I'm so sorry. And then what will come next will be the, the words of someone who is having their life happen to them. It's just been chaotic. I fucked up. I got this other situation. I'm so sorry. And some version of I'm just, you wouldn't believe how battered I am by the events that are around me. That's what's justifying my terrible behavior. And I am so sorry that I am so fucked up and I fucked this up. Mm. And that's, I think just, that's what I mean is like, I am the, I am the recipient of my life. And that's just a story that I tell myself or tell others to justify what is behavior that is not, not the result of that. Wow. It's just the result of poor time management and poor communication. Bad decisions. And ambivalence about going and like wanting to be a good friend and and probably have fun, but also like, you know, whatever. It's a Friday night and it's a, I'm an old man, you know? (laughs) Curious to, and Rodney, I don't know if you had a, on the the victim mentality. On the point? No, I was going to go elsewhere. I, I was too. Um, this is the struggle. This is always the fun party. Then are we in alignment yes. or aren't we? Yes. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, we are, Yeah. which is a very weird thing to happen. Especially um, you're but, so uh, remote, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. It's like this. We bored. 17 years of friendship, I guess I it, it. it pays off. 
but that question Rodney asked is like, when you were 12, where'd you want to be? This is actually a prior guest question or his answer to, um, what do you ask or tell a young person? And he follows it up with, well, what's preventing you from being there? Uh So I'm curious, like what, what prevents you from pursuing still the, um, movie creation, uh, or being, being a, the creator of film? Um, first I have to say that the structure of that question smacks of Scientology and makes me very uncomfortable. <laughs> okay. I wish I knew more about Scientology at this very moment. <laughs> I wish moment. I knew more of Scientology. Well, I've, I've seen uh, uh, Leah Romini's uh, special on yeah. HBO. Or, so I've yeah, just seen the South Park episode. Step back a little bit from what's stopping me from getting. <laughs> Keith's what I about want. to pull out a uh, yeah, egram, yeah, meter. Yeah, we're and, gonna do we're yeah. do your levels or whatever. I'm, just, I'm curious. Yeah. Um, you know the. I think the real, the honest answer to that is nothing. I, that's what I'm doing every day, all day is I'm trying to make a bunch of stuff. And, um, yeah. um, cause it is the world you live in. It is what you're doing. All I'm doing now. I, 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 I made the probable, I, I made the decision to get out of the, I quit my job basically. And, um, uh, my, uh, creative partner, my writing partner of 16 years and I spent, went our separate ways oh. uh, just in the oh. new year. You broke up the band. We, we broke up the band. And, um, and so this is in many ways, this is, a, this is always what I've been dreaming of, about is a time where I can just every day uh, be with my family and work my ass off on only things that I care about. And, mm. um, you know, none of it is a job. None of it pays me a, a dollar, but they're all moving towards ideally a place where um, at least that'll, that'll crash. I'm going to do a Rodney brain thing here. Very, very familiar to me. Yeah. I'm going to try and connect dots that are seemingly very disconnected. Let's see if we can do this. So you were just talking about that and that. So leaving like 16 years writing together or working together creatively. Yeah. At the beginning of this year of 19. Yeah. So I think of things like that moving as very violent processes. Like they just, they shake up everything mentally, physically. And in the lead up to this, you, you mentioned that you're very interested in monsters and violence. Yeah. What did you mean by that? Oh, um, didn't think that's where you were going. Me neither. Um, I mean that that's what I'm really, uh, that's what my work is about right now. I'm, um, that's what you're writing. And I'm writing about a kind of monster story and, um, in, and I'm, I'm investigating, um, in another area, sort of, uh, a real brief moment of violence that has kind of lingered in my life. And so, um, that's what just occupies my thoughts and the stuff Mm. I'm reading about. And I'm just very, you know, they're, They've discovered recently that the Neanderthals and we, or that we, who are also descendants of Neanderthals, you know, that there were more than one kind of human being coexisting and that one was a lot bigger and browier and hairier and um, less, um, you know, frontal cortexier and that a lot of our monster stories comes from that fear of sort of like at night hoping they don't come around and um that just is really fucking interesting to me those like that monster in the shadow is something that i've just been thinking a lot about